Hello and welcome to the History of Voting Podcast. I'm Chris Oates, your host for this podcast. It's brought to you by One Nation Every Vote, a nonpartisan group sharing the stories of why our votes are so important and how they matter. One Nation Every Vote can be found at 1v.vote, that is O-N-E-V dot vote. There you can find the One Voice section, which shares the stories of American voters and their community, One Village, where this podcast lives, as well as attitudes towards voting held throughout our history, One Vote, with stories of extremely close elections, many of which were decided by a single vote, and One Victory, with resources to help boost turnout, hopefully past the previous modern midterm record of 48.4% of eligible voters, which was set back in 1966. This week, we continue the story of voting in America with the Progressive Era. Now, this took place in the last decades of the 19th century and into the first decades of the 20th. This is a time when much of the modern voting system, as we know it, started to take place. So, whereas voting in the Revolutionary Era and the early 19th century resembled more of a state fair and kind of a free-for-all, this is when the regulations and procedures that we now know came into force. Voting registration, the secret ballot, primary elections, direct election of senators by the people— all came out of this time. In many ways, the progressive era was defined by a reaction to the politics that came before it, when party machines were believed to control elections and governments across the country. These machines operated on patronage or a loyalty system. Politicians would hand out government jobs and government largesse to their supporters. Their supporters would bring their friends to the polls so the politicians got reelected and so on every electoral cycle. It was against this system of perceived corruption that the reformers of the progressive era worked, and through their work, created much of the modern electoral system. To discuss this more, I'm joined by Shelton Stromquist, professor emeritus at the University of Iowa, who has taught and written extensively on the politics of the Gilded Age and the progressive era, particularly on urban reform, which, as we'll hear, was crucial to the voting and electoral reforms of this time period. I'm joined by Professor Emeritus Sheldon Stromquist. Uh, Professor, thanks for speaking with us today. Glad to be here. Um, so I guess the first question, because this is an episode about the progressive era, what was the start of the progressive era? I mean, what conditions led to what we have now come to be known as the progressive era? And why do we think of it as such a, an era dominated by reform? Well, like almost everything regarding the so-called progressive era, uh, there's a lot of disagreement about um, when it began and when it ended. Um, not, not, uh, not to speak of uh, who the progressives so-called were. Um, I mean, clearly we're talking about a period in the late 19th century, and I would say um, the 1880s and 90s, uh, in particular, when there was a rising level of uh, both social discontent and conflict on the one hand, and deepening concern about how um, to address that conflict and those um, those social problems, uh, largely spawned by the ongoing and accelerating process of industrialization and urbanization. And cities, uh, cities were growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, we had begun as a country that was predominantly rural with a few coastal cities, and we were now, by the end of the 19th century, a country that was seeing not only large cities, but a hierarchy of cities that were attracting rural migrants, uh, but also increasingly immigrants. And, um, And so the 
the cities that were not built for that kind of population, that size of population, suddenly found themselves um, dealing with a host of problems that they were quite unprepared for. And so, so uh, to address your question a little more specifically, um, there is a there is an, a rising uh, uh, tide, so to speak, of political activism, both inside the major parties, but outside the parties as well, and most notably by the 1890s, the rise of the Populist Party, um, which is usually thought of as a party of, of discontented farmers, but in fact had a significant urban component and was really, uh, in fundamental ways, challenging the two-party system, suggesting that um, it was important for the state, both the federal um, and the state, state level state, but also the local state to become much more engaged with these social problems. And so, um, so there, on many fronts, I would say, uh, by the 1890s, um, and then increasingly in the very early years of the 20th century, um, there is uh, talk about uh, reform and there is experimentation. Um, around reform uh, to begin to try to address these these deep social problems. And what kind of uh, reforms were they? Were they were they uh, targeted at corruption at the very local level, or were they broad based national you know, nationwide that the federal government was supposed to adopt? Well, they were both. Um, they were, uh, you know, and again and again we did, we come to the problem of of a progressivism or a progressive movement that was a hybrid of many elements and not always in perfect harmony. At the state level, uh, there was a good deal of concern about political corruption. Uh, there was concern at the city level as well, but, but because states were in charge of regulating um, elections and, the, and the, the, the way in which elections were organized, um, it often fell to uh, movements that were statewide uh, to begin to push for reforms that would um, that would address perceptions, at least, of rampant corruption in the political process. Uh, and of course, at the federal level, um, it, you, there was a recognition, and, and Teddy Roosevelt gave voice to it um, to some degree in his first term um, after 1901. That um, Large corporations uh, were coming to play an inordinately powerful role uh, in public life, and that some kind of regulation, some kind of um, harnessing of those uh, corporate influences was needed. And, and Roosevelt was, of course, a very uh, powerful voice, uh, um, uh, railing against the so-called malefactors of wealth. Uh, he was a great rhetorician. Uh, his public policy didn't always follow fully uh, his rhetoric, but um, in any case, there was a perception, at least, that one of the one of the corrupting influences in American life was the influence of large corporations, unprecedentedly large corporations, were beginning to play um, in the political process, but also in the you know, in their in their ability to kind of dictate terms of employment and of um, the conditions under which they operated in in cities and states. 
And was that through direct corruption? Um, I think there was a, a line, uh, one industrialist of the era said, an honest politician is someone who, when you buy him, he stays bought. So was it just direct bribery or was it something a bit more subtle, a bit uh, less overt? There was a good deal of direct bribery. There's no question about it. Um, and particularly with respect to state level uh, political machines. But there was also a good deal of, uh, of, of just old fashioned political machine politics, um, whereby um, uh, politicians um, sought to uh, enlist the loyalty of a of contingents of voters uh, from whom they expected, uh, in return for generous treatment, loyalty at the polls. And so um, a good deal of, was made of this at, at many levels in the in, in, in the political process during these early progressive era years of rooting out uh, what were perceived to be corrupt practices of buying votes, of, um, of uh, you, you know, uh, kind of gathering voters uh, to uh, kind of march them to the polls um, and uh, directly influence their, uh, thereby their votes. So there, there were a whole series of, of measures that were put forward um, uh, generally at the state level, uh, but applying to cities uh, that would that were designed to try to kind of break the hold that parties had on voters. Um, there was a great great deal of enthusiasm among progressive reformers for um, voter independence uh, from party control. Um, and in the late 19th century, I mean, in the 1870s and 80s and into the 90s, you know, uh, politics was a, was was a very lively sport, <laughs> and political parties uh, uh, were were a very active presence in the lives of voters, um, and loyalty to party meant a great deal. Um, and so um, you have what were extraordinarily high levels of voter turnout in the late 19th century, um, by our standards, extraordinarily high levels um, in the 70s and even 80 percent of eligible voters marching to the polls to vote. But in the eyes of many reformers, they were voters whose, whose votes were being manipulated or controlled or influenced uh, unduly. Uh, by uh, the parties that were organizing them as, as their political base, and so, um, so a, a whole series of measures uh, began to be introduced at, at, in states to try to break that hold that parties had on voters. The effect of which was, in fact, to um, reduce voter participation. Voter registration, for instance, um, there had not been voter registration before. People showed up to the polls, um, identified themselves, and uh, were allowed to vote. Um, early registration meant, uh, in many ways, imposing a cost on voters, particularly poor and working class voters, um, who had to get themselves to a designated spot to register ahead of time, and then again, to vote, and you know, in many cases, this meant um, losing work time if they could even do so, or um, other costs that 
were a burden. And when faced with that burden, many people disengaged from the political process. Um, the Australian ballot uh, is another example, the, the sort of neutral ballot in which uh, the ballot we know today, where all parties and all candidates are listed um, and voters make a choice and uh, can very readily uh, cross party lines and vote for members of, uh, of one or another party, depending on the office that they're voting for. Before that, when voters went to the poll, um, they were given a ballot beforehand by their party. Uh, and the party ballot did not list the opponents. <laughs> so um, if they wanted to uh, split their ticket, so to speak, uh, they had to they had to literally cross out names and add names to a party ballot. Um, but the party ballots were color coded. It was very clear when you came to vote um, whose party ballot you had and who presumably you were voting for. So um, it was not the the secret ballot as we know it uh, as we know it today. And so again, when you go to a neutral ballot, um, it has a somewhat uh, dampening effect on the ability of parties uh, to mobilize their voters um, and to ensure the loyalty of their voters when they're going to the polls. So that was so the progressive era we can almost view as the turning point between the early voting system, which was kind of ramshackle and parties had a lot of influence and <laughs> your vote was in many ways right. public, to what we have today, which right. is more formalized, more neutral, but also with less voter turnout. Yes, and less and less uh, party affiliation. You know, the I don't know what the latest data suggests, but you know this this notion of a large block of self-described independent voters um, who profess no um, no uh, strong party loyalty uh, is really is really a, a, a post-progressive era phenomenon. And so this this whole kind of partisan world of the late 19th century really begins to break down, um, not entirely, obviously, but but to a significant degree in the progressive era. And it's a byproduct, uh, in part, of the progressives' desire to cleanse the political system of party and party influence. Uh, and 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 to accept, um, frankly, for many progressives, the notion that um, it's not a bad thing if some less qualified voters uh, don't make it to the polls. Um, you know, they were concerned about the sort of waves of new immigrants who were coming into the country, uh, particularly immigrants from southern and eastern Europe, and eventually including African-Americans from the South in larger and larger numbers, particularly with World War I and its aftermath. Um, the the, the in influence that these, in their view, unqualified voters might have uh, on the political process. Um, the, the 19th century political machine uh, didn't, didn't, didn't have a category, so to speak, of unqualified voters. Um, that they, they were interested in enlisting all votes. So there was a real sense of the machines were not just the problem because they were corrupt. They were the problem because they were in many ways successful at winning elections and getting people out to vote. So one way to kind of undercut them is right. to reduce the ability for people to easily go out and vote. Right, right, right. So when did all of this start to come to a close? When did uh, what we would consider the progressive era 
end and and why did it end was it that they achieved everything they wanted to achieve that they cleaned up politics in their eyes and so they didn't have to do anything anymore or did they just lose a lot of elections and fall out that way we're dealing with a country that is so diverse and so vast that it's it's hard in some ways to generalize um, but the the momentum I would say behind progressive reform generally and part of which was electoral and that's what we've been talking about for the most part but part of which really had to do with enlisting government to um, you know eliminate child labor or to reduce the hours of labor for workers or to uh, regulate monopolies the momentum behind the this reform movement that was operating at many levels and in diverse ways in different parts of the country, I think it's fair to say, began to unravel to, to a significant degree in the context of World War I. Um, up to 1914, the outbreak of the war uh, in Europe, um, which really marks the beginning of the United States' mobilization to support the allies in Europe and a whole set of economic and social changes associated with that. Um, up up to that point, um, both at the federal and state level, but also at city levels, there was an uneven but still markedly successful record of instituting reforms. It was not it was not comprehensive by any means, but that sense of of a common program and a common um, uh, a common agenda began to uh, uh, began to fall apart. Even though some reform momentum was was sustained, and and in particular, one has to look to the fight for women's suffrage, for instance, the 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 capacity of the country to finally, in the context of war and the immediate post-war years, to achieve women's suffrage was noteworthy and was a measure of, at least in one realm, the sustaining of. Uh, reform momentum. But in, in many other ways, those reform efforts really, really uh, came apart. The, I mean, I, for me at least, it's very hard not to see the war and the polarizing effects of the war as a real, as a real uh, break on progressive reform. Uh, and the fact that, you know, the, 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 the turnouts um, for federal elections at least in 1920 and 1924 were the lowest that they the country had ever seen i mean nothing like the 19th century um was an indicator of the extent to which um the electorate had in fact been demobilized and the ability of parties to galvanize their supporters whether for for reform or or simply the kind of maintenance of the status quo um was was severely uh, impaired. Um, okay, well, we don't always like to end on a down note of the lowest turnout ever, <laughs> but I guess in this era, that is what happened. I mean, if 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 I may, let me let me, and in order to uh, qualify somewhat the, uh, the 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 bleak picture that I've been painting, um, I mean, the the fact is that although the 1920s represented a period of uh, uh, political retrenchment, at least in terms of progressive reform, um, in some ways the seeds had been sowed uh, for 
the next era of reform uh, in the 1930s, and and uh, and particularly coming out of cities that were now cities that were um, uh, populated not just by a first generation of immigrants, but by the sons and daughters of immigrants um, who uh, who took hold politically uh, in the mid to late 20s and then became an incredible force for um, uh, uh, change and support for Roosevelt's uh, New Deal program. Um, so, and, and with that, voter turnout did again rise, although it didn't rise to the levels of the 19th century, uh, and to some extent it was a temporary rise. But, um, but there was a sense in which um, a legacy of progressive reform uh, found uh, found a place uh, within a, a kind of New Deal social democracy that, uh, in some ways, it had paved the way for. So, um, so there's some there's there's some light <laughs> light at the end of the 1920s tunnel, even though uh, uh, it took pretty grim times in terms of the Great Depression and the hardship and and dislocation and disorientation that the Great Depression brought. Um, it nonetheless um, kind of reawakened a, a reform consciousness that, to some degree, uh, immigrants and their children had become carriers of, uh, despite the progress, progressive movement's concern and wariness about about their ability to uh, to rise to their civic obligations. Uh, by the 1930s, they were they were an important force for change. Uh, and and in some ways the bearers of that progressive legacy. Well, that that is a great way to end it. The people that the progressive reformers okay. dismissed ended up uh, carrying on that movement. Yeah, right, right. I think I think okay. that's a fair assessment, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, for your time. I know we've run over time, but this has been really fascinating. Great. Thanks very much. Take care. My thanks to Professor Stromquist for speaking with us today. Now, as he said, this is a conflicting period for voting in America. The efforts of the progressive era reformers are understandable when seen from the perspective of the corruption they thought they were facing. And many of the reforms they enacted from direct election of senators to introducing referenda certainly advanced the role of the voter in the democratic process. But we cannot separate those actions from the fact that many intended the reforms to also prevent voters from getting involved. Reformers wanted to keep those they did not believe to be deserving of the right to vote from becoming part of the process. Immigrants and working class voters saw their voices reduced, and many of the reformers that were advocating a better form of democracy were completely silent on the restrictions to African Americans' rights to vote across the former Confederacy. It is a historical irony or contradiction or evidence that things were more complicated than they were that the beginning of the progressive era overlaps with the beginning of the Jim Crow era. And this had an impact. Turnout in presidential elections fell from 79% of available voters in 1896 to just 48% in 1924. So it's evidence that history is not just a simple trajectory from the past into modern times, and that voting has always been both celebrated and denied, sometimes at the same time. It's a reminder of why exercising the right to vote, when we have it as we do now, is so important, and how even in a time of great reform and great opening of the political system, so many people were still locked out of it, particularly the 50% of the population that were women.
But women's suffrage is something we'll get into next week. So for right now, I just want to say thanks for listening to the History of Voting podcast from One Nation Every Vote. You can learn a lot more about the group at 1v.vote. That's O-N-E dot V-O-T-E. Also give you some resources for how to get out to vote, to register to vote for the midterms, and how to get your friends and family to register and to get engaged. So if you like it, please tell your friends, give us good ratings. Uh, anything you can do is a big help. The producer for this episode was Shivanki Bhatia. The editor was Spencer Curry. My name is Chris Oates. Thank you and see you next week.